It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom <laughs> and bloom. That's right. Friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a fortress of fortitude in a funky old world. <laughs> it's a funky old world out there. Hey, I am Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones co-founder of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of some of the highest quality medical kits on the planet at store.doomandbloom.net. Not to mention that she's the goddess that's the hottest, the hostess that's the mostest. So wonderful. She's like a hug wrapped in laughter. Wrapped (laughs) in a magic show. Wrapped in a delicious chicken burrito. That's... How wonderful That's to be is. a low-carb burrito, though. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, you know, we have a lot to say, both conventional wisdom and sometimes unconventional. But before we start, we have to tell you that, you know what, we'll go as far as it takes to make your family medically self-reliant in times of trouble. But beforehand, yes. you must listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but what about natural disasters, pandemics, all those slings and arrows that life may throw at you? There may come a time when you are the highest medical resource left to your family and our job is to make you effective in that role. We want you to succeed when everything else fails. Hey, you know what? Recently, we were asked to write an article on tourniquets for Survivor's Edge magazine. A great read if there ever was one. You, I don't know if people know that we write for magazines, but we do write for magazines. We've written for American Survival Guide. We've written for Survivor's Edge. We've written for Prepper Survival Guide. Gosh, Self-Reliance Illustrated magazines. Did you say Backwoods Home Magazine? Back, no, Backwoods Home Magazine. Yep. Uh, all sorts of magazines in the survival and homesteading steading genre as they call it Mm -hmm. and uh, we really enjoy it and we hope that you will pick up one of these magazines once in a while and uh, there are just tons and tons of great information that you can find there oh there is you know what most people know how to place a tourniquet at this point i guess we've talked about it and we've demonstrated it in videos i have videos right on youtube and what is the name of the youtube channel dr bones nurse amy that's where you got to go if you want to we have i think like 200 videos on the mm, channel right not quite 200 really we have a bunch. maybe close well, closing in though well we definitely have a bunch well but <laughs> you know what there are principles about tourniquets about hemorrhage in general that you should know to be most effective if you're going to be using it to save a life i want to talk about the risk of hemorrhage it's always been a possibility Traumatic injury can occur anywhere. You have a car accident. You can fall off your roof. You can fall off a ladder. You can, gosh, just just about anything. A shooting incident, anything. And in this situation, if there's a major arterial bleed, it can cause the victim to be beyond medical help in just a very few minutes. It takes about 
about a minute really for the heart to pump blood all the way around your body and actually come back to the heart again. And if you had one major artery that was severed, like the femoral artery, it probably you'd be, I would think, beyond medical help in about three to five minutes, or maybe maybe even less. That's really fast. And that's, that's faster that wow. than emergency medical personnel scary. can arrive. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, so. Always have your medical kit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Close by. That's right. You should have one in the car as well. Especially when you're doing anything dangerous, even around the house. That's right. Think about it. If you're on a ladder, let's say, and you're up, um, I don't know, cleaning your gutters, mm-hmm. and you happen to fall and get cut on something you fell onto on the mm-hmm. ground, you're laying there. By the time you're screaming for someone to help you who may, may or may not hear you because their windows are closed in the house, or you're alone, you could be gone. So whenever you're doing things around the house, using a chainsaw, lawnmowers. I had someone on the YouTube channel write to us and say he got shot by something that flew off of a lawnmower. Yes. And got him in the leg. That happens not uncommonly. Yeah. So, I mean, you could just be doing routine things. In fact, you and I were talking about we have tourniquets, you know, pretty much in every area of the house, but I don't have specifically a kitchen tourniquet. Oh, we and I am Absolutely. going there. to put a tourniquet in with the forks and knives. So I know where it is and we see it every single day, several times a day. And it's, it's seared in our minds where it is in the kitchen instead of fumbling around yeah, for can't it. Miss it right? So we're going to have a kitchen tourniquet. So I suggest to everyone out Not there, a bad idea. Have a kitchen tourniquet. Where do you mostly get cut? In the kitchen. And then put one in your pocket when you go out to mow the lawn or use a chainsaw or cut down something or, or use anything sharp or even just being outside by yourself. Even if you're just going up on the ladder to do something you know, simple. Stick a tourniquet in your pocket or attach it to the ladder so it's always there. A- attach it to your lawnmower so it's always there. You know, I mean, they don't take up much space. Put them in a tiny little bag, even a Ziploc bag. Who cares? They're very compact. Yeah. You could actually take a look at them at uh, Nurse Amy's store, store store.doomandboom.net. She has a million of them on there that you can uh, choose from. So as far as the lawnmower goes, you can get one of those SWAT tourniquets that we have, the stretchy. Oh, yeah, You could actually wrap that around the lawnmower handle. Oh, yeah. yeah, That's out of your way on the side, and it's there. Always there. Out. Mm-hmm, right. And I would cover it up probably with an ace bandage just so the sun doesn't degrade it. But the heat won't hurt it, but the sun might degrade it. So you could wrap like a little ace over that. So you've got an ace bandage and a SWAT tourniquet on your lawnmower. Bingo. <laughs> there you go. You're going to think outside the box, right? That is. I, actually, I think that's a great idea. So the bottom line is, is that uncontrolled blood loss, bad. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, very yes bad. that is the truth. I mean, in battlefield situations, it's a the cause of death in probably about 90% of otherwise survivable wounds. And the sad part is that the grand majority of these deaths occurred before the casualty was able to reach a modern medical facility. And so it's important to have the ability and the knowledge of what to do to stop bleeding Really, at all times. I mean, whether it's on the battlefield or at home. Now, the most important tool that you can have that will help, of course, well, 
besides your hands and the ability to provide pressure would be a tourniquet. And a tourniquet's a device that uses compression to stop the flow of blood through veins or arteries. And there have been attempts to stop hemorrhage on the battlefield, especially that have been described in ancient writings as far back as the time of Alexander the Great. Usually, these efforts involve using a cloth or a strap and a stick, which was turned to apply pressure to a bleeding limb. And that is actually one type of improvised tourniquet that can you, I can actually put together today. In the early 1700s, people started really thinking about this. And a French surgeon named Jean-Louis Petit, he developed a strap and screw device that actually could effectively compress blood vessels and stop bleeding. And he used the word tourniquet to describe it. It developed from the French verb tourner, which means to turn, because you're turning this stick or this screw in order to provide the pressure that you need to stop the bleeding. Or the windlass, as they term now the, we the call, stick now. We right? call that rod Officially. A, a, right, a windlass. <laughs> now, during the American Civil War, more than 50,000 strap tourniquets and 13,000 petty screw tourniquets were employed to perform more than 29,000 amputations on Union soldiers. So wow. that's just on the Union side. Since then, the tourniquet has been both praised as a lifesaver, so vilified by some as a limb loser. And in the 21st century, well, I think our attitudes have really changed towards the lifesaver part. I mean, it, there was a 2013 study of the military's experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that showed that nearly a quarter of combat deaths in the decade between 2001 and 2011 might have been prevented with the right equipment and training, with the tourniquet in place. And currently, as a result of our experience there, every U.S. soldier carries a tourniquet in an individual first aid kit, or IFAC, whenever they're in the field. Although the amount of blood in the human body depends on your sex, your weight, your age, even your the altitude you're at, an estimated 9 or 10 pints is about average, I would say. Now, how does blood loss affect what signs and symptoms a rescuer might expect to see in a victim? There might be a pool of blood on the floor, but it may be hard to estimate just how much blood there is on it or how much bleeding the victim has done. Well, the American College of Surgeons, which I'm a retired fellow, identifies four classes of hemorrhage and their signs and symptoms. The class one hemorrhage is when you lose less than 1.5 pints of blood. That's about 0.75 liters for our Canadian friends. And if you lose less than that, there's little or no effect on the body. You could donate a pint, a pint of whole blood, for example, as often as every eight weeks. Now, the victim may appear somewhat anxious. After all, there is blood there, and the pulse may rise a bit, but blood pressure and respirations remain normal in this person. Maybe it's just, you know, seeing blood that actually causes that person to have a higher pulse. I mean, if I saw a pint of blood of mine on the ground, I'm pretty sure my pulse would probably go up, but it's mostly not due to medical reasons, but due to psychological reasons. Now, class two hemorrhages, while you start getting into some serious bleeding here, that's when you have 1.5 to 3 pints, 3 pints, 3 units of blood lost as a result of a wound. And for uh, for our uh, metric folks, it's 0.75 liters to 1.5 liters. The victim in this case that person is usually pretty agitated. They have a rapid heartbeat, over 100 beats per minute, 
and the respirations are starting to speed up as well. The 20 to 30 a minute, about normal is about 12 to 20. As the body speeds up processes that allows the now smaller population of red blood cells in the body to deliver oxygen to tissues. If you have less blood cells, they have to go around faster, right, to deliver the same amount of oxygen. Interestingly enough, even with three pints of blood, blood pressure tends to remain within about normal limits, at least for now. This, but physically, you can see that the skin of the patient becomes cool and they start appearing pretty pale. Mm -hmm. Now, class three hemorrhage, that's about three to four pints or 1.25 to two liters. Now you start seeing some pretty major changes. The blood pressure begins to drop because you have less blood in the arteries that provide pressure against the walls of the arteries. And the a body's ability to transport oxygen to tissues begins to weaken. And at this point, you've got somebody that's very pale and maybe agitated. They start losing mental status. They may appear confused. The heartbeat is usually very rapid, maybe over 120 beats per minute wouldn't be surprising. And respirations could reach 30 to 40 beats per minute. You're making a desperate attempt to maintain oxygenation. And once you hit a class four hemorrhage, that's over four pints or more than two liters. Well, your victim is now very pale. And that confusion that they may have, the agitation changes to confusion, and that confusion now becomes lethargy and leads to unconsciousness. The pulse is very rapid, over 140 beats per minute, and it's thready. After a period of continued blood loss after that, the blood pressure drops even further. The heart rate and respirations begin to drop as the body loses the battle to oxygenate itself, and that leads to circulatory system collapse. So that's, something, that's something we call hypovolemic shock, and this victim is in serious danger and without some real major intervention, may not survive even, may be beyond medical help depending on how much blood they've lost. So I want to talk a little bit about some important principles regarding tourniquet use. You have to understand hemorrhage, the proper use of tourniquets to be an effective off-grid medic, and there are a number of principles you got to consider. You should, of course, know the difference between arterial and venous bleeding. Arterial blood is oxygen-rich, and that gives it a bright red color, and also tends to spurt vigorously from the wound in time with the pulse. And that's because the blood that's coming from the heart, the oxygen-rich blood, is under a lot more pressure than venous blood. Venous blood is oxygen-poor. It's on its way back, and it's really not getting quite as much pressure on the veins as there is pressure on the arteries. And the venous blood, because of the lack of oxygen, is going to be much, much darker, tends to flow more steadily from the wound, less pulsatile, and... Uh, that's, I think, the important thing to know about arterial versus venous bleeding. Now, you'll read about how direct pressure on the extremity will stop 80 to 90% of bleeding, and I would say from mild to moderate bleeding, I think that's very, very true. But there are circumstances when it's obvious you're dealing with a life-threatening injury. And in these cases, you got to use a tourniquet immediately. That's usually the right move in this situation. As a matter of fact, it says so in uh, a lot of the military uh, manuals these days is any serious bleeding you got to definitely start with the tourniquet now the likelihood of survival is much higher when a tourniquet is applied before the victim goes into shock from blood loss that just makes common sense and we don't have a lot of common sense we're floating around these days in 2020 <laughs> but that common sense i hope has not left you now that doesn't mean applying pressure is useless when you first encounter a victim of course it takes time to 
get your stuff out so that you can help them if you have a tourniquet in place, things like that, or put on gloves. You'd like to put on gloves if possible, use a cloth dressing or other bar- barrier to use on the area to press there. Even a t-shirt, socks, um, a, let's see, washcloth, anything, sure, any anything. kind of material you can get a hold of. It'll help create more pressure between your hand and where the bleeding vessels are. Now, if you're lucky, you might be successful at stopping the bleeding. If, even if that's the case, and if it seems that the bleeding has stopped, you have to continue pressure for at least 10 minutes. That's, exactly. That, to me, is a minimum. That's right. Because that could easily re- re-bleed. Right. Now, let's say that you saw somebody, you, know, you turned a corner, you saw somebody bleeding to death, you jump on them, and you press on their, on their bleeding area, and mm-hmm. you... Trying to control it, but the problem is you have a tourniquet in your pocket or a tourniquet and a first aid kit, and you need to get to it, or you need to get to your gloves, things like that. I mean, you're very rarely going to be walking around with gloves on and with a tourniquet in your hand, right? So you need your hands free to be able to access. I will say, if you're going to go out with a chainsaw, I may have gloves and a tourniquet in my hand. (laughs) All right. Just kidding. In 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 uh, (laughs) non-chainsaw incidents, yes. <laughs> you may wind up not having gloves and you may not wind up having your tourniquet right in your hand. So what you might need to do in that case is to get your hands off the wound and apply your knee to it instead of apply a knee to to the bleeding area and that'll help place pressure and give even, you free hands. Yeah. Even an upper arm. Or right you or know, like arm. an air an elbow area. That might work. Might even be able to allow you to, to reach and grab things. It just depends on where the wound is. And what you can get on it, and what your and where your stuff is, I, I think it's better for the knee because you can have your entire arm or both arms free. So that's why I recommend the knee. Now, be aware that the standard limb tourniquets—you may have a cap tourniquet or one of those standard tourniquets—they're not meant for certain types of injuries, like groin injuries, hip injuries, uh, injuries to the torso, armpit injuries. These bleeds require a special items known as junctional tourniquets right and so these junctional tourniquets might be useful to have in your medical kit but they're actually a little more bulky and they're probably not something you're going to have in your pocket or just hanging from your belt Uh, you might have them in a big medic bag if you happen to be in the field with uh, a survival group and if that if that's the case then that's a good thing for this for your victim now, effective tourniquet use on extremities, that depends on knowing the full extent of the bleeding injury. And so you want to have some EMT shears. You want to fully expose the limb to rapidly but thoroughly investigate the source and the extent of the hemorrhage, right? It makes sense. You want to place the casualty in a position that's most convenient for you to visualize this. And oftentimes, this will be what we call the shock position. And that's laying flat with uh, on your back with the leg raised 12 inches or so above the heart. Now... Tourniquets are best placed on bare skin, but there are circumstances where you should not take the time to cut through the, the clothing and do a whole thorough investigation. That would be in hostile encounters. If there is a hostile encounter going on, the medic may not have time to cut away the clothing and provide a thorough evaluation of a serious bleeding site. And in that case, you just put the tourniquet as high up on the extremity as you can and over the clothing. If there are foreign objects or projectiles that are embedded in the wound, you want to leave them in place. They might stem the bleeding. And, of course, you could apply pressure by packing on both sides of it. Now, I was speaking about elevation. 
of legs in the shock position than other people feel that you should elevate a bleeding limb above the level of the heart. Now, that may make it more difficult for the heart to pump blood out of the body, but by itself, it's unlikely to stop bleeding altogether without direct pressure. So you need to have something providing pressure, whether it's your hands or a tourniquet. So there's also these things called pressure points. Pressure points, there's a whole map of them, are areas where uh, blood, large blood vessels run that if you press on them, they'll slow down bleeding further down on the limb. And that's great, but it rarely stops heavy bleeding for a couple of reasons. One is you have to sort of know the map of pressure points, where all the pressure points are. And two, your limbs are probably, are, are not probably, they are supplied by more than one artery. Probably. <laughs> so the blood that goes to your, your artery doesn't go, you don't have an arm artery and that's it. You have a number of arteries that will travel, you know, from your torso to your, to your arm or to your leg to give good circulation. It's time to apply the tourniquet. You figured out, man, I need a tourniquet. Well, you should apply it a good two to three inches above the hemorrhagic wound. That's about five centimeters or so. Now, why wouldn't you put it directly on the bleed? And that's because severed arteries tend to retract back towards the torso. So you want to avoid placing the tourniquet directly over the bleed because the blood vessel that's bleeding is probably an inch or two further up. I think anyone who has dissected a frog in science class in high school may have noticed when they cut the muscles that the muscles pulled apart. And if you were to think about pulling them back together, you would kind of have to pull hard on them. So anytime you cut that kind of uh, muscular area or there are tendons around your blood vessels that help keep them strong and together, they're going to pull back. That's right. You know, so it's like there's a sheath around it holding it together. So when you cut that, it just kind of pulls back inside. And it makes perfect sense if you imagine that, that you're going to have to put the tourniquet up higher so you can get up past the end or the edge of where that artery was severed. And that makes sense. Now, of course, you want to avoid placing tourniquets directly over a joint. That, I think, is very important. Uh, application over the nerves in joints actually mm -hmm. can cause you know, pretty significant and, and actually permanent damage. So it's very important to uh, avoid ap applying a tourniquet uh, directly on joints like knees or ankles or, or elbows. Now, tourniquet pressure against one bone is actually superior to pressure against two bones. The way we're built, we have an upper arm and an upper leg, which has one large bone. A very large bone. That is your leg. humerus in your arm and the femur in your lower leg. Now, Bleeding, however, can occur in the forearm or in the lower leg because you've got actually two bones. And the two bones that are running down your arm, are uh, the forearm, are the radius and ulna. And the ones running down your uh, lower leg are called the tibia and the fibula. And pressure against the humerus, for example, in the upper arm, femur, and the upper leg will be much more effective in controlling hemorrhage than in the lower leg or in the forearm because there may be bleeding between these two bones that are in the forearm and in the lower leg. Mm -hmm. In most cases, deep bleeds are going to require packing of the open wound to reach bleeding vessels. If bleeding continues, standard dressing should remain in place. 
you want to pack new dressings directly on top of the old ones. Now, if the wound bleeds through subsequent bandaging, well, then you have to consider special dressings, hemostatic-type dressings like Quick Clot Silox or Kytazam. To be effective, these products have to be in direct contact with the bleeding vessels. In that situation, you have to remove old dressings prior to application. And, of course, direct firm pressure should be applied for at least three minutes. That's for just about any kind of hemostatic type dressing, quick clock, C-lock, Titusam, any one of them. You should beware of pressure loss after placing a tourniquet. Pressure loss refers to the loss of tension under the tourniquet that occurs after the initial minute or two of placement. The tourniquet may loosen enough to allow a re-bleed to occur. So that's very important to be very wary, constantly monitor areas that are bleeding. The first tourniquet that you use may not actually stop the bleeding. You may actually need a second one. And if that's the situation, what you're really going to have to do is place that just really directly above the first one, uh, closer to the heart, and that will give you the best chance of stopping the bleeding. You want to apply firm pressure whenever you cinch a tourniquet and twist a windlass. If the person that you're putting the tourniquet on is not experiencing a lot of pain when you do this, you're not applying enough pressure. It's probably a good idea to warn them this is going to hurt because if the tourniquet is tight enough, the bleeding and any pulse beyond it is going to disappear. This is definitely going to be an uncomfortable thing for the victim to deal with, but it's going to save your life. You have to remind them, I'm saving your life. The time of application, whenever you have a tourniquet in place, you always need to document it with a permanent marker, marker if at all possible, in a very clearly visible location. Now, the cap tourniquet has a space, and a number of other tourniquets have a space provided on the windlass strap itself, and luckily placement for a couple of hours, or even more in some studies, should pose little risk of permanent damage or even amputation of a limb. In austere settings, and you don't have a pen, well, just write a T in time on the patient's forehead with a marker, with, if you don't have a marker, ashes, or even, or even blood, there's going to be blood there on the ground. Improvised tourniquets like a bandana and a stick, they might be of help in controlling hemorrhage, but they're inferior to commercially made military tested items. Now you can use a man's tie, but the problem is, is that that would have a cord-like effect so thin that it may damage tissues. A tourniquet should at least be four centimeters, an inch and a half or more wide to prevent damage to the nerves underneath it. The classic leather belt tourniquet seen in movies, usually too tough to tighten, can't, well, certainly not with a windlass, can't be secured in place unless you have somebody whose waist is as, whose thigh is as big as their waist and the people are just not built that way. And so you would have to actually, if you are able to cinch it tight enough, you actually have to continue to hold it and that's no good. You need your hands free to get help or to do whatever it is necessary to deal with other injuries. This victim is going to need to be transported, and if you transport somebody with a tourniquet in place, you've got to really constantly monitor for rebleeds. Any jostling around that occurs, well, honestly, that is something that could really cause problems. Splint the extremity to stabilize it. That will help decrease the chance of further hemorrhage. Now, the faster the victim gets to the hospital, the better. If there's no hospital or other modern medical facility, you want to place that victim in as controlled an environment as possible, and that's usually where the bulk of your medical supplies are stored or your field hospital if you're very well equipped. 
One thing that I really don't want you to do is to tighten and loosen the tourniquet from time to time just to see if people, if the person is still bleeding. That is bad news. Usually they wind up bleeding a lot more if you do this. So once you tighten the tourniquet and you've got the blood loss stopped, get that person to where the most help can be given. Don't just continue to loosen and retighten and loosen and retighten your tourniquet. That's important. You do want to transition the tourniquet off the person before the two-hour mark, if at all possible, though. The wound can be assessed for transition from tourniquet to hemostatic gauze and pressure dressing. So you should not loosen the tourniquet unless you have your hemostatic gauze, your Celox, Quick Clot, Kytosam available, and maybe an Israeli dressing as a pressure dressing. You pack the hemostatic gauze firmly inside, right against where the bleed was, and the pressure dressing over that, make it nice and tight. You can really give a lot of pressure, up to 30 pounds of pressure with your average Israeli dressing. And in that, at that time, you can loosen the tourniquet slightly. Don't remove it from the leg, but just loosen it and evaluate it for recurrence of bleeding. If it does bleed again, you do will have to retighten it. But if not, you go ahead and loosen it further. Keep it around the leg, but just nice and loose in case you, ever, in case you have to place it again for any reason. And just reevaluate it when all tension has been released and monitor it constantly. That's important. So the bottom line is that medical kits should be readily available just about anywhere in the home. You should have a kit nearby at all times. Uh, public spaces should have kits. They should have them right next to the fire extinguishers. They should always include a tourniquet. And everyone, even school kids, should be trained in its use. In my opinion, this is something that you can really accomplish if you actually added it as part of a normal school curriculum. And I hope that one day that that indeed will happen. The U.S. government has established the National Stop the Bleed Initiative. And that helps offer training to the citizenry. Programs like this have resulted in thousands of Americans who are better able to deal with major hemorrhages. These people have and will continue to save lives. That's all the time we have for this week's episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast. I'm Joe Alton for Amy Alton, thanking you for listening in and hope that you'll listen in next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.